Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emily Kaneda, Jessica Rowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch by email or Twitter. On today's episode, we're really excited to have with us Dr. Dale Bartle and Dr. Xavier Eloquin. Dale and Xavier are two of the three editors for the Learning from the Unconscious book, which explores psychoanalytic approaches in educational psychology. Dr. Dale Bartle is the co-director of the Doctorate in Educational Psychology at Cardiff University and a research tutor at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. Dale trained as an educational psychologist at the Institute of Education, University of London, and gained a doctorate in child and educational psychology at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. His interests focus on organisational psychology, group relations and applied psychology and research. He is actively engaged in knowledge generation and is an external examiner for a number of training courses across the United Kingdom, contributing to conferences, journal publications and various research communities. Dr. Xavier Eloquin is an educational psychologist and organisational consultant with over 15 years of public and private sector experience. He completed his doctorate at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust and is currently a visiting lecturer at the Tavistock, focusing on group and organisational psychology. He has written several articles and chapters on subjects, including group dynamics in schools. He has worked in the UK, India and Qatar, offering consultancy, training and supervisions to psychologists, teachers and professionals. We really enjoyed talking to Dale and Xavier and we really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hi Dale and Xavier, it's so lovely to have you here. It might be nice to start a little bit about both of your journeys to becoming an educational psychologist and kind of where you are now. Yeah, I... I hadn't heard of educational psychology when I started as a teacher. And not long after I started teaching, I realized I was not very good at it. And just by chance, someone mentioned educational psychology. And it just suddenly, oh my gosh, of course, that makes so much sense. And uh, thankfully for the Open University, big shout out. I'm a real fan of that degree course. I did my conversion and got my first degree in psychology and uh, found my way by chance, really, to the Tavistock under Sue Rendell. I, I just, I love the way she, she set that course up and the way that from the interview process onwards, it was thoughtful, it was curious, it was sort of very clearly saying this is about this is as much about you finding out whether this course is for you as vice versa and yeah I ended up almost without really sort of a plan at the Tavistock I think I once I had an understanding of the unconscious and the sort of intimations the sort of ideas around certainly Kleinian psychoanalytic ideas and theory I it was like a duck in water I thought gosh this makes so much sense and um well I suppose I, I think We'll come on to it later. This is my final point for this bit. But I was always surprised at the end of the course when I met EPs from the TAVI and elsewhere saying, oh, psychoanalytic ideas, they're, they're really interesting, but you can't really use them as, as an EP. And I just thought, I, I thought, I, I can't see how these aren't applicable. The interplay of a dynamic unconscious 
coming up in relations between individuals and groups. Um, so I suppose that's a sort of abbreviated version. If we were in, in the pub or something, I'd spend longer. But It's tricky, isn't it, Zav? There's something about how do we tell the stories and, <laughs> and, and how does it come out? I think yeah. that's kind of woven into this stuff for me in terms of the, that, that kind of biographies, pasts, how do they, what do they do to us? What do they do to what we kind of bring with us? And I, I think it sort of seems difficult, this idea of telling how did you get into something? Because I suspect there's a lot of things that, as I say, it aren't been said as well. And that's kind of part of what goes on the more we look at the, the sort of unconscious aspects and, and how we might distort things. But I... I guess if I say what's in my mind in terms of coming into the work, I I think that the sort of different things, but the one quite vivid memory was as a teenager, sort of watching a, a documentary where a psychologist was helping someone with agoraphobia. Um, and I was just sort of watching them and thinking, I want to do that. Um, and that, that kind of... I think looking back, it was probably CBT and a, a sort of clinical approach to that working with someone. But the, the, there was a sort of catalyst there to say, well, what's a psychologist? How do you get into that? And I kind of had that, that, that sort of desire, wish. I think it, it sort of mixes with, again, the biography of my parents were in education, dad as a head teacher, mum as a teacher, and that was sort of part of the framing of the sort of importance and value of learning and education as well. We can do to help ourselves and help others. And I, I guess those things kind of came together to do um, teacher training at the time before getting on to um, the training as an EP course. And it just became more and more a motivation to keep keep learning, keep studying. And I, I, I think that the tabby does come into the story for me as well in terms of depth psychology and that, that sort of desire to, to keep trying to find out more about what might help. But I think it's not quite as altruistic as I might like to make it feel in terms of helping others. I think there's something about <laughs> the sort of self-interest and how do we find out about ourselves that's part of what motivated me as well as trying to find out how do I make sense of what's going on with others around me. It's interesting that point that um, Xavier made about the the question, this is about finding out if you know, fit between you and the course and this idea of self-interest or, or self-awareness. Because I think mm -hmm. one of the things that, um, you know, students do point out is that you kind of do need to sort of know yourself well, or you you kind of almost forced to get to know yourself very well when you're training to become an educational psychologist and trying to work out, am I feeling this way because of something going on for me? Or, you know, what might be this kind of communicating to me? Um, I'm wondering, yeah, if you would just say something about that and that kind of idea of feelings and kind of, you know, self-awareness and self-enroll and how relevant you think, even if you weren't kind of um, Tavistock trained or working in that way, can, does that idea have any relevance for other educational psychologists or people working in the, the education and community-based services more generally? Well, uh I, my brother-in-law is a, a counselling psychologist, actually, and, and he he 
often says that you know we we're all a little bit narcissistic in a useful way because we want to we want to make a difference you've got to sort of believe that that you can impact the world in some way and, and have, have some sense of your own agency and then effectiveness and um i mean i think you know as you as you said Joe, that was certainly you know, another motivation was to want to help um I, regardless, of course, and, and I, it is, of course, different being an educational psychologist, but I think this is really uh, something we, we have to, to wrestle with. Our desire to help, certainly speaking for myself, I found sometimes got in the way of actually helping. Um, and certainly when I was training and not, not long after, the threat to my self-esteem when a case didn't resolve itself or play out the way that I thought it should was, you know, thank goodness for supervision, really. Um, and, you know, the other part of that, I think, is the complexity for educational psychologists is that we have control over so few variables. We're not in a clinic. The capacity for us to get triggered, not just by the encounters in the, in the moment with the other, but the fact that we end up and we get put in a cupboard and you know, how dare they? Don't they know who I am? All those, all those petty little things that, that sort of, you know, they, they're data, but they trip us up when you go into one school or one setting, you're treated one way, you go somewhere else, you're treated another. And to my mind, and I, I know that it's not just a psychodynamic um, way of working, but the, the, the emotions that get evoked in me as a result of those Yes, I could see them just as me, and it's an affront to my my sort of self-image and all the rest. But maybe also it could be data about the the state of the play of that that organization. And then I'm using my emotions um, as part of you know, my task. Yeah, I was thinking as you were speaking there about a slightly different sort of way of approaching things early on in my kind of career as an EP. I did a thesis around solution-focused approaches and, and started, I think, clinging on to that in a way in terms of I've, I've got this that could help me go out and work with people. And I, looking back, I think it was, it was something of an experience of a sort of battlefield-like scenario, sort of driving between skirmishes and, and, and getting involved in these kind of different sort of tensions that are out there in terms of resources, availability and the sort of needs and demands that are put on you in role and the, the kind of conflicts that that gives rise to. And I think I sort of found over time that the, those kind of ways of working, I think we could see solution focused as a sort of a tranche of systemic kind of a questioning, but it, it it still left me feeling that I was I was trying to help, but there was some sense of it being a hollow kind of experience. And there was something, the more I got into working at the Tavi and thinking about psychoanalytic ideas, it, it, it seemed to become something more permissible to actually tap into what I was experiencing rather than try and bracket it off. I think that, that point there about psychoanalytic ideas and those being taken outside of what is a very 
structured clinical context and where there is kind of more control exercised over things like territory boundary, time boundary that you could have with a, you know, a very therapeutic model. The appointment starts at this time, it finishes at this time, it happens in the same space with the same person. And all of us know going into schools and settings, that's kind of the complete opposite of often what might happen. Um, I'm just wondering if if you both would say something about what, if you were to pick like two or three psychodynamic or psychoanalytic ideas that you feel actually have got applicability and transferability that you use yourselves in, in your own work as a as an educational psychologist. Are there any kind of ones that you feel, I keep coming back to this idea because it really is trying, it's helping me make sense of what might be going on? Yeah, I suppose the sort of fundamental, and I think potentially kind of controversial idea of the unconscious comes to mind to begin with this this sort of sense of actually if we go into meetings conversations with people with some kind of awareness or acceptance that there might be things going on that we're not very aware of consciously that that might open us up in terms of just sort of being a, a little bit less fixed on the information gather kind of a process and trying to think actually what what's really not being spoken about what's not being said what kind of feelings am I experiencing that might give me some clues in terms of what's happening in the particular situation with with others and, and using that as as a kind of a guiding principle underpinning any other sort of uh, ways of approaching the task in hand um, I think could just sort of broaden the horizon or the, the, something about helping us scanning for possibilities that the other thing that comes to mind the idea of inner worlds and that that kind of Kleinian sort of idea that we, we've got a, a set of things that we've taken in from our experience of the world that are going on within us and, and and doing things that we might not be aware of but so of other people so when we we meet we've got this kind of collision or connection between inner worlds and, and that can open up different sort of possibilities of how we do engage how we do um invite dialogue and what what sort of approaches we take to trying to engage with each other and trying to listen and I, I think Zab and I are playing with an idea for a bit of writing at the moment the working title is put the pen down and there's something about how do we engage and what might we hold in mind when we try to yes 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 I mean that I think that it, going back to the question as well Emma that yes clearly it, it these ideas have their germ in a very specific setting and it's changed and it's developed. But I think, I what think that feel? actually there has been a sort of forgetting or a, a lack of recognition, certainly within educational psychology circles that I know, way that psychodynamic and psychoanalytic principles and theories can be applied to any endeavor where human beings operate. And, and the reason for that is that. Aside from the practice of psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy, there is a model of human functioning, which I find quite compelling and which sort of it's predicated on the idea that things happen to us when we're young. They set down patterns of 
relating and behavior, which then for a number of good reasons are no longer sort of forefront in our minds so we can get on with doing stuff. And that, I think, you know, we, we, we know from neuroscience and, and more recent studies, there's that that's how species get on. You're born into an environment and you adapt to it, but we're so complicated. Uh, we need a, a sort of a, a wider raft of uh, adaptive strategies. So all these things are there. How I relate to my mother, to in, in Kleinian terms, the breast. Uh, is it thoughtful? Can it respond to my needs? That sets up my relationship to other, to self and to the world in general, that, that third part of the triad. I like, well, there's a lot, and you know, you must make sure that you sort of rein us in if we get overly um, excited. But I think, for, for one, the, the conception that we are not unitary, that sometimes when I'm talking to you, you're governed by different um, energies, you're, you're, you're in, in object relations term, there's a sort of object sort of colouring or shaping how you might perceive me as a psychologist, as a human being, as whatever, a partner. And can I be curious when I'm having this consultation or a discussion with another, what what stage are they in? Now, in, in Kleinian terms, that's the unhelpful term, the paranoid schizoid, which basically means I'm in danger, they're out to get me. Um, in, in sort of simplest terms, or equally unhelpful, the depressive t- position, which is a sense of, oh, wow, we're all connected and the things I do to other people may hurt them. You know, when I'm angry, when I'm upset, that, that damages my inner model, my little caricature of a, a loved one, a carer, whatever. And I use that all the time. I use that all the time when I'm talking to a, a parent or a teacher. I have a sense of, you know, what's the... What's the sort of image of the, the metaphor in their language? Is it a sort of series of statements governed by attacks, resentments, um, overwhelm? Or can they sort of see the, the, the situation or, or the person with greater detail and greater nuance? Um, I'll just give a, you know, a short example of that, which was uh, a deputy head teacher who was in charge of attendance and had this it was a managed room from another school this very intelligent mensa bright trans student he was so caught up this teacher in uh, an attendance level of 83 percent and anything below that just not acceptable now this this young person had come from attendance at at their previous school of around 20 percent up to low 70s i mean you know champagne moment we don't get many of those just by changing school and he was so locked in a sort of paranoid schizoid mindset, looking at sort of what are called part objects. He couldn't see this person as a student who'd struggled so incredibly um, and, and got there. She was just reduced to one of the many statistics on his on his um, Gantt chart. And we worked quite hard to sort of get him to, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, that's their story. Oh, wow. And that sort of that spur, that little opening in the heart, I think, was really what I, I kind of often think conversation is about, getting people to go, oh, my gosh, of course, of course. Yeah, so that's, yeah that, that's my one of my ideas. I've got plenty more. Yeah. I'd just like to pick up on your points up about the paranoid schizoid kind of idea, and I think there's something helpful in the example and the, the bit you described in terms of the threatening stuff, they're out to get me, that, that kind of... Um, paranoid state i think that 
let's get so it might be worth us just touching on for a moment in terms of the sort of hyphen that links them and that that kind of there's a connection between being in that state of threat and what does it do to us and that kind of idea of splitting we might then get into a mode whether we're consciously aware of it or not of sorting things out into the good and the bad and and, and categorizing them in that quite binary way which i think it happens at groups organizations this isn't just an individual kind of experience but there's something there about we're kind of coming back to whoever's point about what helps looking out for it and and that sort of a splitting as a defensive maneuver that we all get involved in and just trying to notice because if people can bring them to our attention we might be able to get free of some of the ways that we're stuck in um, that more binary way of seeing things mm. Mm. I'm just going to ask Sara because she's at the completely opposite end of the journey, I guess, in a way from, from you guys, that she's newer to being introduced to some of these thoughts and ideas. And I guess I was just interested, Sara, too, if there is something that you yourself have noticed that you have taken out from, from some of what you've been introduced to in terms of you know, psychological concepts and ideas that come particularly from those trust kind of tradition. Um, are there things that you find yourself drawn to or have what Dale and Xavier shared kind of, yeah, you kind of say, yeah, that that is something I too try to make use of? Yeah, I mean, just listening to both of you guys has been really interesting. And as you guys were talking, I was like, oh yeah, I kind of do that. And I guess if I'm trying to summarize it in kind of what have I really taken away from psychodynamic teaching or psychoanalytic teaching, it's kind of a bit, I feel like it's kind of given me permission to stay curious in the moment. Um, just holding all of those things in mind. So kind of the awareness of the unconscious, the awareness of the inner world um, and kind of staying curious instead of just accepting what you see on the surface. I think that's probably my biggest like all of the other concepts kind of feed into that. So kind of understanding my self-enroll. I think the teaching on self-enroll in year one has been really pivotal. I think it's so easy to kind of like react uh, rather than just sit and take a moment. And I do feel like it's quite heavy work, um, but kind of just stepping back and sitting and being like, oh, okay, well, what what was it? What happened during the day? What, what kind of led to this feeling? Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we go, we start the profession and the training being like, I need to have all the answers. I need to be the expert. I need to like know what to do, know what to say, know which assessment to use. And actually it's weird, but I think learning that those psychoanalytic concepts have allowed me to kind of just be, <laughs> and just be like, okay, well, maybe I don't know. Um, mm. And that's okay. <laughs> mm. I was really, I was really interested. It's making me think of the, um, this sort of some of the stuff that we, we touch on in relation to Edgar Schein and process consultancy and that idea that, you know, you're 20 minutes into a consultation with the teacher and the teacher kind of turns to you and says, so what do, what will you do or what, do, what should I do now? And that if you're not aware that you have, uh, you've a whole life and a whole history that's come into that room and the, the teacher has also had a whole life and a whole history, how they relate to kind of power and authority, how comfortable or uncomfortable mm -hmm we might feel with being placed in that position, how much we might want to be in that position, even though we may not be aware of it, because that profound desire wanting to be helpful and useful and for people to give people the answer that they're asking for. 
Um, and worries about, well, what if I don't do that? Or what if I say I don't know? And what might that do to how credible somebody finds me or how much they may like me or, or want me to be here? Um, I'm not sure whether we give as much attention as we should do, both in terms of training and all the way through, that those first kind of initial kind of relationship building stages with people where you're on that one up, one down. See, it's, it is hard to be the one who's in the help seeking position. It can potentially be you know, a bit humiliate. I should know what to do. I am a parent. I should, I should know what to do with my child or as a teacher, I'm very experienced. How come I don't know what to do with this particular child? Um, and, and that those feelings are coming into that first consultation with the consultant and just being able to hold a little bit of space or, or mindfulness that maybe they might not be something that people are consciously aware of, but those feelings are really real and, and very powerful and, and do have an influence perhaps on, um, yeah, how we, how we would both relate to one another. I think there's something really important in that, Emma, for me about the kind of, when you said humiliating, the, the sort of, the potential for shame and guilt, that, that kind of what do we bring, whether it's as a teacher, as a parent, maybe a child or a young person, that, that is in the mix quite possibly. And our sort of readiness to um, acknowledge it and speak to it or not, it feels like it makes a difference in terms of what then happens in that working relationship. And I, There's something important for me about as the person enrolled getting on as a scientist practitioner, do we keep moving forward with our tools because it feels quite safe and containing and that we're, we're, we're doing something proactive together? But actually, is the space alongside some of these different tasks that we'll be involved in to acknowledge, actually, what's happening for the people that have come in the room um, and what's happening to us? Mm. And I mean, you always say, you always quote that, um, Costa, only connect, just, just, just connect. I mean, I, I find consultation terrifying. I just get so nervous, so nervous. I'm not, I, I'm not at this stage, I'm not in doubt of my technical skills. I know how to ask a question well enough. That's not the issue. And I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had consultations and, and sessions of all types, which I've almost I've termed them glamour, glamour consultations, where they technically they're so proficient, they look amazing, the pacing's right, and, and at the end of it, you walk out with this slightly sort of ersatz sense of nothing's really happened there. It's all been on the surface. Um, and, and the contrast to that is this sort of abject terror. I'm gonna be found wanting. I'm going to come into this room and all I've got, because as you've just said, Emma, you know, there's this whole history behind their face. I don't know what I'm going to get triggered by and bring up when I'm in the room, I might've stubbed my toe that morning. So I'm in a foul mood and whatever. And the sheer terror of being found empty. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm presuming I'm not alone in having some of these things, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm offering them because I think they are something that, that makes sense for us to feel. To go in with a sense of, I know what I'm going to do next, would be not to see the person in front of us. It's really nice. Uh, there's a sort of quote, I think, 
I may get it wrong, but I was reading about Anthony Sher a little while back and he was talking about his RSC training and his um, experience of actually getting out on stage. And he described acting as involving um, consummate technique, but utter spontaneity. And it sort of struck me that that could go for us when we, we, we take up our work with other people and that risk of being spontaneous and not knowing what's going to happen or where it could go. I think is, it resonates with me, your thought about terror, Zab. I think there's a bit of it going on here and now and in preparation <laughs> for this recording. The kind of, do I try and capture everything I know on a notepad that I've learned in the last decade or so? It's just you suddenly get overwhelmed and there's a sort of a risk of freezing and feeling empty like you say and, and, and something about kind of recognizing and trying to work with actually what's going on in me at the moment and what might that be telling me is is part of the work i think zara's point there um there's that it, i think it was a quote that beyond had used that may have been from a, a t.s Eliot po- poem about um entering into a space with neither memory nor desire so that you're not trying to remember everything and kind of have preconceptions or ideas and and that history taking up too much room and you don't let where you want to get to or what you would like to have happen get too much in the way either but Zara what you're saying is kind of it is quite risky isn't it to be able to say I'm going to try and stay as curious as I possibly can be about this person in this context at this time and I'm not going to have preconceived notions about what they should do based on what they look like, what they sound like, what I believe their kind of um, cultural background to be, or indeed my own, um, is is so important and yet is also uh, it's very difficult to do. Um, and I'm sure it feels like a lifetime's worth of an endeavour to try and to try and stay with that. I guess just to ask Dale and Xavier about are there things? I mean, Xavier, you mentioned supervision a little bit earlier. Are there things that you've had along the way that have supported you in being able to take up this very difficult and yet very, very essential and necessary way of working that you have found helpful? Sort of picking up on your Beyond quote, I, I, I like it as well, Emma. I think that beyond memory and desire, the, 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 which I think if I break it down into my acronym is Be Mad. And there's something about that kind of... Do we take the risk? Can we? The, 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 trying to be open. I just shared a quote um, from Walt Whitman with Zav. We we tend to, I think Zav like sharing poetry, and there's something of that that um, we might get onto or touch on. But there's, there's something about what what poets try and do, and what what we try and do in consultation that feels like there's a link. Um, Whitman said in one of his poems, from this hour I ordain myself loosed of limits and imaginary lines, going where I list, my own master total and absolute, listening to others, considering well what they say, pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating, gently but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. And I think he talks about that in different ways, Whitman, about this kind of how can we listen? How can we be open? Mm. Mm. And there are ways of helping us um, to do that. I'm wondering what thoughts you're 
might have so. Well, I, I mean, it's without getting too esoteric. I, I think um, group relations conferences, for all the reactivity they evoke in us, are very powerful for well a number of reasons. But with regard to what we're talking about here, the idea that my feeling system could be registering things that are occurring in the room and are not not just me but rather my subjectivity sort of opening out to events in the room I find astonishing still but also incredibly helpful because and I, I sort of be interested to, to hear from from all of you actually but this idea of, of the mind or a mind being able to contain atoms of psychological distress of the other for long enough so that they can be made sense of in a, in a new way. Um, being with someone who really hates their, their kid, for example. You know, that's unspeakable. Who would ever admit such a thing without, as, as Dale's already alluded to, so running, you know, hiding in shame. Oh, I love... I love children, really, which is that kind of false surface utterance. Um, and, and yet, if you can contain something and hold it in your own mind as a consultant or a, a therapist or a psychologist um, and have it sort of live in you without it becoming yours, these very strong feelings. I think we write in the book somewhere about someone sitting next to a, a, a registered adolescent sex offender and just every time at lunch, just smashing in their mind's eye, smashing their face to a pulp, absolutely smashing. So there's this smear on the, you know, in the fantasy, this smear of sort of, 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 sort of blood across the dinner table. And then they snap out and go, oh my gosh, I'm a psychopath. I'm, okay, let's, let's use supervision. Let's make sense. Do, do you normally have fantasies about smashing people's faces in? No. Okay, what do we know about this boy? Well, he was abused. He then sort of was sort of became an abuser himself. What might these feelings, these images that you have in your mind, say about what it's like for him and his attitude to himself and, and to others? Oh, yeah, let's not be too trite, but clearly someone who's not very happy, someone you know, governed by self-hatred. And that the capacity to hold that image, I'm not a psychopath, but I'm so full of violent vicious images was what helped them change their attitude to this young person now lots of other stuff hadn't that luxury of supervision and what did we see well we didn't see them hitting them a violent attacking them. but they're all those spiteful little setups mate now you're late for bed now mate this is a residential care home it's five minutes past your ground for the weekend i'm just being reasonable here. i'm just following the rules that actually Beneath the surface, giving giving vent to the self same sort of violent reaction as, as I've just described. Now, I think that that's that's for me why I, I like working in this way because it allows me to sort of make sense of, of very strong feelings in myself and not freak out about them, but go, okay, they're in me. They may be me. It's possible, but if they're not me, what do they say about what's going on here? I and think I that, that fascinating. Kind of example has, has got something for me in terms of. What you've done with that person about this kind of idea of the frightening stuff that's within us and and the the normal reaction to run away from it and and that kind of whenever we notice ourselves 
within ourselves that that kind of there's a really intense feeling that I'm experiencing we might want to get away from it but actually this kind of way of working encourages us to try and face it to try and walk towards it we might need another person to help us do that but then we can get somewhere that's less evasive and, and potentially more liberating by actually facing some of this frightening stuff yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about in terms of like trying to face those things that, you know, we've had experiences of ourselves. And it brings us quite nicely to one of the questions we had from Twitter, who was asking kind of if we would expand a little bit on the concept of the wounded helper, which was um, in the book um, that you guys have co-edited um, and kind of how we bring that to practice um, in terms of the use of self in consultation, our history of experiences. So yes, well, wounded help. That's it's that's not our idea, is it? It's, it's a familiar idea to people, but I think it has relevance, doesn't it? And and to pretend otherwise is um, well, it's dangerous, really, isn't it? Uh, that that we come in with all the answers neatly packaged up and. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think of it like sort of Lego click interventions where you get a little, you, you get your coloured red piece and you put it on there and it clicks together, it's all neat and, um, and, and everyone goes off happily, which sadly I, I don't find often to be the case. But like you said, Emma, and, and again, it's, it's always, if we were in a room, it'd be easier to have a slightly sort of different sort of, sort of, um, conversation. I'm, I'm sort of mindful of the sort of interplays that we have if i can hold on and register the fact that i too am flawed and frail and and hurt and that's probably what brought me into the biz anyway then there's less chance of me being completely overtaken when those buttons get pressed i mean and this is again i'm, I'm sure it's not just within our way of working but that, that you, you we realize that when we are in the business of talking about difficult lives difficult emotions difficult situations something does get evoked in us and as i've said if we can be mindful of that if we can know ourselves better than we did the day before then we can start using our own life story our own sort of mishaps and upsets to help us connect it's and it really i mean it's, yeah it's just i mean i used to get i used to sort of forget about these things but now it is just it's if i can be as human i don't want to say as present because it sounds a bit but it is if i can be there in my fingertips in my toes behind my eyes in a room with someone who actually i might find very disagreeable to be with uncomfortable I might you know, it's subjectively I might not like but I, if I can be there then some alchemy occurs that's more more kind of precious to them and to me than the sort of um I don't know the experience of going to a GP where you're sort of reduced your symptom and then given a prescription um well <laughs> in that sub, the, the, the kind of alchemy sort of takes me to the the back to the paranoid schizoid and the sort of associated idea of the depressive and that, that kind of idea that actually we might get involved in some splitting when we take up our role. We might be the good person um, dealing with the, the, the person that comes ready to show us their wounds um, and, and be ready to try and treat them. 
But actually something different, I think, happens if we do what you're talking about there, Zav, in terms of acknowledge our own. Um, and we might be able to get into a more compassionate position where we recognise the good and the bad within us and, and we're more open to recognising the good and the bad is within all of us. And we might be open to being able to hold some of that stuff by drawing on ourselves that gives us a greater capacity to hold a whole person in mind when we're talking to that did that was really helpful to kind of think about in terms of like what we bring and kind of I, I don't know I guess the feeling or the word that was coming to my mind was like just being quite genuine in the moment um yeah hmm. what do you find then Sarah like, I mean I'm interested you you've just started what's do you feel terror when you start a concert? What what comes into your mind? I'm putting you on the spot now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I I obviously do get nervous before consultations. I think that's quite standard when you're still training. I think I try to as much as possible hold on to some of the psychoanalytic teaching we had in first year. I really was quite drawn to it, and I quite enjoy it. So I think holding that position of not knowing and holding that position of of knowing about splitting and trying not to kind of cut yourself off from what the person is bringing in the moment for me it was quite challenging to stay with what was a good fit for me in terms of practicing consultation and I did find that sometimes I would go into a consultation that started off as a dyslexia referral and it ended up feeling like it was something completely different and it ended up actually being about the young person's like emotional well-being and kind of feeling confident and supported and within the school um, and I think sometimes being able to withstand um, some of the discomfort within a consultation and just kind of sticking to maybe what you're feeling in the moment um, is very useful sometimes feels unhelpful so when you go away and you're like oh I don't want to do the dyslexia assessment you said mm. <laughs> um, but it is it yeah yeah <laughs> we won't go down that route <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean that's exactly it. and the, there's so many sort of ideas so I mean I think a shout out to to Bion really I think for educational psychologists especially this idea of tolerating uncertainty I mean I to, to elaborate on the, on the terror what I what I've learned more often than not but not always occurs is that if I can tolerate that uncertainty and go in and, and and do a good job of gathering information asking questions keeping curious if I don't for I, I don't know if other people find it but sometimes something gets offered up and you think oh phew and you snap into it it's like ah anxiety gone problem solved we'll just go and I'll get my you know what we'll do this or that and sometimes I've started thinking of that as sort of foreclosing on on a, a discussion and if I sort of ignore that and go, let's just stay a little bit longer. Let's just stay a little bit longer in the conversation. Be attentive, not just to what they're saying, but how I'm feeling. Don't trust one or the other too much, but I'm using my emotional state as intelligence or possible intelligence about what's going on in the room. Sometimes what I've noticed happens is this sort of bizarre um, kind of percolation of bubbling up, being called it the sort of selected factor, the, the, the O of the, the, the session, this kind of, new three-dimensional image suddenly burst into my my thinking oh here's what we're really here about the the, the as you've just described Zara, that if i hadn't stayed on if i just if i'd let go of my uncertainty just too quickly i would have missed that and suddenly i'm in this completely new world different perception of what's going on and then the conversation changes and quite often then 
there isn't a set of interventions for me to recommend or actions. People have a different clarity. Um, and that's what I'm, so I forget and I come back to that, but I'm interested in trying to work in that way as much as I can. I think that concept of, you know, talking about beyond and the idea of containment, I think there's a couple of things that are quite striking. I think one is the idea that safety and containment are the same thing. And I think at times I'm not quite sure that they are because they don't equate exactly for me. Um, but if... Uh, Somebody like, for example, a consultee or a, a consultant seeking supervision on their consultation, what they're looking for is full safety. I won't be threatened by any of this. I'll be completely secure. I'm not quite sure that's possible because learning of any type is risk taking. You know, you don't know something that's a bit threatening. So it's not going to always feel or or even want. We shouldn't desire this kind of sense of safety, I guess, um, which I know is slightly controversial. I think the other issue about uh, containment is is the idea of can we take, you know, Beyond's original ideas in relation to, you know, originate mothers and their babies and apply as an adapter to what might go on within a consultation in terms of a consultee bringing so much, you know, unprocessed kind of fear about am I getting this wrong or resentment as to why am I being, you know, tasked with doing this thing or anger, all of the, the very complicated feelings that, that can be held by a consultee and that they bring those to a consultation. And perhaps the task of the consultant is to try and be open and available to receive this, to take it in, to digest it a little bit and to be able to return it in a slightly more processed way. And I think the task that teachers and senior leadership teams, head teachers in schools have today is unimaginable. I mean, Freud talked about education and the impossible profession such a long time ago. It's, it's become a lot more impossible, I feel, in some respects now. Um, that at times it feels almost like people feel they have no permission to have a feeling about anything because that's not what they're supposed to Or a, a good teacher or a good head teacher would never feel anything other than, you know, um, permissible feelings and, and what even does that mean but actually is there a space within consultation as we practice it now where we can take that idea from beyond I mean obviously we're adapting it and changing it slightly and it's not exactly what he was talking about but is part of what happens in an effective consultation some degree of containment and it's a, a kind of a containment process. So when, maybe when you have it fed back and digested slightly, it becomes more easy to manage mm. and maybe frees some stuff up to be able to think about, for example, reading or literacy, um, as well as all of this other stuff, rather than um, what can get brought in. Mm. Really helpful, Emma, as you're speaking there. I felt a shift. There's something I kind of hear people talking about containment, and I think quite a lot of the time the sort of word gets passed around, and, and we might not put that sort of criticality on it that you're doing. And I, I, as you're talking there, the, the kind of idea of containing enough and, and maybe acknowledging uncontained states rather than constructing our task to be the good container we might be setting ourselves to an impossible task there we're working with a young person with anorexia some time ago trying to work with the parents that young person 
was I really capable of containing what was going on for that family? I'm not sure. And maybe acknowledging that rather than setting myself up for some sort of image of myself as a container of that level of intense experience for that family might be more genuine in terms of what's offered back, that it's awful. Yeah. I mean, if you only feed uh, an infant pap, it's not safe. And and I think, you know, the, and there's that old Buddhist idea that you have to come to a safe space so that you can turn and face the sharp things. And I suppose that's that's how I would see it, that a consultation in, in sort of psychic terms and in, in terms of what's going on in the mind is you're creating a, an arena in which people are helped to turn and face difficult things, not just to pretend that everything is sweet and light and that we only have good feelings and nice thoughts because that's just patently not true is it it can be a bit terrifying to admit that yeah um and i think as you're talking about sharp objects after <laughs> to mind we did a bit of work together you and i at a conference some time ago where i was sort of trying to offer an idea about a split container to to the group and th this kind of have I failed in my task if I was attempting to offer some containment and it felt like there was a rupture? It, perhaps, but it, it might be, like you say, that if we turn to that point of rupture and try and look at it together, that's where the work is. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, for, for all of us, really, that, that's got me. You know, it is the here and now of any any activity. What just happened there? You know, I... I I mentioned uh, that your 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 daughter did something and you rolled your eyes. Now, what's going on there? Let's stop. Because I felt a flush of something. That's all that's that's the sort of the bit that we want to follow if we can be alive to it. Very interesting. I had like a wave of loads of thoughts and I feel like they're all <laughs> feel like we keep moving, which is really yeah. lovely. Back what's to one of them, Sarah? Yeah, what what are you holding in what, what is this in your mind? <laughs> um I guess the idea of split container and, and safety, they were they were both a bit, I don't know, maybe when you're training, you have this idealistic idea of being contained. Being like, I need my supervisor to contain me. And I do get that safety is different from containment, but it then makes me think about a bit about well-being and a bit like how do we manage our own well-being if we are supposed to stay in this safe uncertain type of space as educational psychologists I mean it feels fine now because we have supervision once a week plus personal supervision once a month and then kind of what what happens when you're not a trainee anymore and how do we manage it, that really helpful Zara the, the, the kind of and I think I experience it too, this sort of moments of tension and, and the fantasy of there's someone somewhere that's going to help hold all of this stuff um, and I, I need to go to them. And, and the sort of perhaps realisation that um, in whatever relationships we're holding those fantasies, they might be open to inspection and, and we might find back to the wounded helper that that fantasy of the, 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 the container might shift to a more depressive position of actually they're not all containing. They're a human with all of their problems and flaws and it might not go quite as well as we hoped in terms of what we'd get from them. But maybe there's more of an engagement in reality when, when we find that out. It's sense making, really, isn't it? And that, I, so, gosh, there's so much in what you said. Like, like, like one, I was 
I was quite surprised. I, I overestimated how much supervision educational psychologists actually get and how much they're required to get. And I think that's a big conversation. I know we're talking about consultation here, but that's a more so, I think, as as the role has changed and the type of training has changed. I mean, it's so rich. When I talk to trainees, the things that that you're you're sort of doing on the courses and the collision sometimes with, with move into sort of work once you've once once people have um qualified is one thing, but also the world is freaking crazy now. I mean I I get quite panicky because all the things I use, all the tools I used to use 10 years ago, I don't think they really work for the 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 world and the children that are sort of coming up now. It doesn't quite work anymore. And I get very sort of quite worried that that, that you know I have to go back and find other ways to think about things because all the structures of society really are kind of wobbling and shaking. And you know, some of them needed to go. But, you know, actually, there isn't now much consensus about what's going to take their place. And and the humble ed psych, amongst others, has to go into this. And you're going to get zapped by it all the while trying to sort of keep keep the client, sort of the, the consultee or the school or the formation in your mind. That's and a hard yeah. job. And as you're saying that, Zab, I absolutely agree. that your point, Zara, about mental health or, or what happens to us. I, I think I'm certainly thinking in some of my sort of role as working with psychologists in training this kind of as you say Zav, the the instability that's out there add to that the learning curve that a trainee is on and all of the instability that involves in terms of identity and development add to that you're meeting people who are putting really frightening things into you mm. i think what's going on in that cocktail well it's it's a really quite volatile one potentially um and, and again i think it just reinforces to me as we're talking here how do we try and help um and supervision is a, an important part of that but it, it sort of brings me back in to mind one of i think the previous sort of tavi staff have talked about the the need for therapy if you're going to go into this kind of a work and i think there is something for me that that rings true about that that is is a difficult one in terms of what could we what could we do but if we're talking about understanding ourselves and knowing who we are when we go into our role it does seem a logical kind of extension to say well if we're using these ideas might it could it should it go hand in hand with therapeutic analysis ourselves I think one of the things that, you know, the, the current training requirements, regardless of where you train, is about therapeutic competence, isn't it? You mm -hmm. know, so it's not yeah. a kind of a, perhaps a, a, a Tavistock specific idea. Yeah. Um, I think that sense of actually, um, have I resolved enough of my own stuff that I'm not going to bring that into a, a, a therapy, whether, you know, it could be cognitive behavioral approaches, it could be something um you know more systemic or narrative you know it, it's probably important to kind of recognize that 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 may be there too um i i think one of the 
really helpful bit is the sort of illustrative use of examples that you've both given, because I think sometimes the concepts, and indeed, I think one of you mentioned that the wording like paranoid, schizoid or depressive in 2022, in the kind of wider context, those words mean very, very different things to how they're actually defined in in much more kind of strict Kleinian terms. And then picking up on this idea about, well, how might your own therapy help you like it's to offer something that would explain it a little bit maybe for people the way I would see it is if you're going to be offering consultations so you're not a therapist but you're offering consultation to say a, a head teacher oh. someone with a real position of power and authority how you have experienced power and authority and how people have behaved towards you in the past in that way if you haven't quite resolved that for yourself there is just a slight chance in the here and now of I'm not I'm not here as a small child thinking about my parents or my own previous experiences when I was little, but the here and now is affected by all of those things. And if this very authoritarian person, I am taking them up as being dictatorial, punitive, harsh, controlling. Actually, I'm maybe my objectivity. Zara and I were talking to to. Um, a fantastic Cyril Pickering recently, my objectivity is gone because I'm not in the moment of the here and now. I'm in the back of the there and then experiencing this sort of display of power in a very, very different way. And I guess that's why I think therapy potentially for anybody doing training that you want to enter into a helpful profession um, is essential because it helps you really understand. Actually, this has nothing to do with this person now, it's a little bit about what's gone on for me in the past. I think sometimes we don't do the ideas and the concepts a good enough service. Yeah, because they can be translated, like you both have done, into sort of more applicable and slightly more accessible, not to lose the richness, but to understand that they do have meaning and can be very helpful and are very real um, outside of, you know, the sort of stereotyped idea, which I think I hope we've kind of done a lot to address generally. Um, it's not lying on a couch with an analyst sitting behind you and, you know, speculating wildly or, you know, very outdated things that, you know, even psychoanalysts now would not kind of a, a sort of ascribe to. One thing I guess I wanted to ask about with this idea of the richness of the inner world and the richness around the unconscious and these being ideas that are particularly helpful is the idea of the external world and and culture and societal structures and sometimes a criticism that can be leveled at maybe some stereotyped ideas about psychoanalysis is that it completely ignores you know reality and in particular i think for for our our trainees and for people practicing educational psychology in the uk are the structural realities in relation to racism homophobia mm-hmm sexism and so many structurally embedded inequalities within the education system for example Um, and I'm just wondering about whether you might say anything about uh, your thoughts about the idea of the richness of the internal world the richness of the unconscious and how it might sit within a context of also being able to think about systems outside of oneself. Wow Um, yes Pan recognized the external world although it was often reduced to the the presence of a mother, but certainly for the infant, that is typically um, the first encounter with the external world, which then sort of has to 
sort of confront the, the sort of initial objects and, and, and subsequent relations that the infant has. Um, and I guess in, in a sense that almost your question leads into the, the, the organisation in the mind or, or um, the, the school in the mind or, or whatever, that there's a constant interplay between me experiencing a system of which I'm a part, perceiving it, those perceptions being refracted by my own internal world's um, sort of tendencies, proclivities and all the rest of it, which I then contribute back, which then, to, to, it, you know, it doesn't deny the, 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 the external world and the systems we're a part of. I think what becomes really exciting, how, you know, what, what am I doing with, the, with, the, with my experience of the world I'm a part of? Do I get pulled into the paranoid schizoid? Do I get gulled into a them and us syndrome? Which is, you know, it has a place. Sometimes you need a sort of level of competition or aggression. But the question for us is not um, a, a sort of full pretense, oh, I don't have these thoughts, but, oh, these thoughts arise in me. Do I wish to give them any more sort of um, credibility? Well, I, I think you hit some of up for me in terms of that back to that kind of idea of turning to face it and, mm. and this kind of when you're speaking over I think of important issues that we've got to um, try and hold in mind in our formulations and understandings of what's going on at individual group and at systems level and I think these these ideas for me can help us we we, we talk about the organization in the mind in the book and this this kind of recognition that we've got an internal world but we we internalize and interact with how we hold systems in our mind um the the thought that was going through me as um you were talking Zav, was this kind of Actually, rather than getting into the splitting and the good and the bad, getting into the curiosity and the engaging in it feels part of it. The sort of thought that came to mind was um, climate breakdown. Um, people who might position themselves as, as um, denying some of the evidence that's out there and actually my readiness to sort of think, can I engage in that sort of line of, polarized thinking or not it might be easy to dismiss and to sort of label others as bad but actually to get to that more depressive position perhaps we've got to be able to surface some of this stuff that's within groups within systems within us and try and face it together to see if we can get to a more integrated position mm. than the kind of split and polarized way that might cause rifts divides that um, are destructive yeah, yeah, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. What's you're looking thoughtful there? <laughs> I feel like I've had like quite splitting thoughts in terms of like when I first thought about psychotherapy and psychoanalytic thought, I did feel like maybe it lacked a bit of I don't know thought about maybe cultural awareness or the uh, the external world. I feel now I'm totally sold on it <laughs> now that I've been on the course for two years, but. I do think there is space to maybe, I don't know, think about those influences, but I guess they do influence our internal working mm. model and our perception. So it does come into context in, in some way. Mm. Mm. Well, I think you're sort of setting the challenge a bit there, Zara, for me in terms of um, do we sort of 
put this stuff on a shelf with a, a sort of a dusty glance or do we take it off the shelf and say actually could it help us in a here and now in a contemporary situation where we've got other lenses which might help us in terms of critical theory other ways of looking at things and, and might there be some value of integrating different theories to see if we can help ourselves understand what's going on societally structurally within groups and I think you're you're part of that. I know we spoke a little bit about your interest in research, Zara, and I think we can do things to see actually when we put ideas together and use some of these lenses, what do you find when you do it? You might find that it's it's more or less helpful, but actually we can try. Yeah, I mean, actually, and just to, to, to build on that, that, you know, of course, and of course, you know, systems psychodynamics, which is... Um, a, a sort of related field and I think you know that we have, it's funny that we haven't spoken as much about that as we might have uh does full it's it's fully there the system how how systemic issues the, the way things are set up authority role power um the kind of structural aspects of a family or a, an organization then feed into and make use of or are used by psychodynamic ideas like like the ones we've discussed and that that is an organization that's a school that's the the mesh of um relations and assumptions that we walk into as psychologists when we go anywhere um you know and it's quite striking when you get a sense of that um from just the minute you walk into the, the reception of a school what's what is it about that first encounter that can be data to help with a hypothesis about just what it's like to be a, 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 a sort of human being working, learning, living in this system. But also, as you say, that's the thought that's crossing my mind that there's the here and now, but there's also the history of that school. And actually, if we ask some questions, we might find some things about actually what might be still in that system um, that's perhaps not been spoken about, but might be very present um, in terms of past experience of working with other services, of managing recruitment, retention, all of these sort of pressures and things that this organisation or organism experiences. We might, with our psychoanalytic thinking, just get interested in looking back on actually what does this system hold in its history and it might help us to think about how might that be influencing the here and now yes well it reminds me of another really i mean this so th i think this does sort of help bring it together in in real terms uh, a school i was in where the, there was a head teacher who was a very powerful personality to the point where teachers were not allowed to arrange the rooms they liked. They had to go to him for permission. This is a large secondary school, 100, 100 plus members of staff. We weren't allowed to walk down the corridors with coffee. Um, it, it was a very impermeable boundary. And and to, to use that lovely phrase of um, the shadow of the object, he's there, he's in everyone's mind, and then he leaves. And I was, I was gonna work with a, a, a looked after child. And I came up to get him and, and the deputy head said, oh, you can't work with him. He's been naughty. And we, you know, we, we resolved that issue. That, that, that's for another conversation. And, and, and sort of I went to work with this lad. But I came after, and afterwards and said, look, what's up? What was that about? You, you, 
you, you're not allowed to work with with this boy because he's been naughty. And the deputy head went, it wasn't me. It was, and she mentioned the name of the head teacher. And I said, he left a year and a half ago. But he was still in still in the mind, governing how she, she made decisions. Yeah. And that, I thought, was such an interesting example of yeah. you know, below conscious awareness until I said, what the hell's going on? But absolutely moderating and mediating to what's going on in that environment. Um, so there, you know, I think that's, I always come back to that. It's quite a powerful example of um, how, how our inner world shapes the system. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And like there, there are obviously, there were a few questions that came on Twitter that we haven't actually touched on and kind of where the conversation is kind of going now in terms of like system psychodynamic approaches. We should invite you back to have a whole hour yeah. on that. Because <laughs> I think the other question was around classroom in the mind. Obviously, unfortunately, just given time and stuff, we maybe we'll save that question if you guys do come back. Um, but one question we do like to end on is um, if you have any book or article recommendations. My sort of first thought is um, read poetry. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a lot of reading lists that we can draw on and share with each other, but actually stepping across the boundary, getting into reading outside of our field is where you can find some creativity and, and connections and links and generating new ideas. So my rather broad thought and response is pick up something you like and read it. Yeah, I would, I would, it's quite funny because that whenever Dale and I meet to talk about it, I think we always end up <laughs> talking about poetry. But I think there is something there about the intimate workings of, of the human mind. That, that uses images as much as sort of long, complete sentences and things like that. I mean, I I, I do I do like Armstrong. I love Armstrong's organisation in the mind. That's that's a great text for now. Bits of Beyond, yeah, lots of Beyond. I think is a theory of thinking. That's a great article three. That's fair. Yeah. And the book. <laughs> and oh the yeah, book. plug plug by the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're for some reason we'll blind spot our own, but I'm just sort of thinking in the sort of Tavistock tradition, crossing boundaries again. One um, professor, Andrew Cooper, I had the sort of pleasure of working with some time back. He put together a book called Conjunctions about um, using psychoanalytic thinking in social work. Um, and I think it's it's just a really, I find, compelling account of how some of these ideas can be applied in the field. Thank you guys both so much um, for just all of the fruitful discussion today. It's been really interesting. Well, I think it was that way for me because of the way you helped us to sort of think and talk and, and brought yourself into it as well, Zara, and Emma as well. So it's, it's a thank you back from me. Yes, I echo that. Yeah. Lovely.